Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It's so wonderful to see a man at one with his cigarette. I also love the way he's flaunting the, and you as well as flaunting the no smoking rules, strict no smoking rules in the fine rooms. I love it. You feel that you've passively imbibed for 15 minutes, which in fact is what the sitters said. I mean, David smokes almost incessantly. Um, he doesn't smoke when he paints. Ah. He doesn't smoke when he paints. Because you, you've seen him. I just wanted to say briefly that this work is standalone. But it relates to, I think, a grouping of work, five Americans, but to, to, I suppose you might say, an ad hoc series of, of portraits you made of artists. Cy Twombly, um, Julie Meritu, Klaus Oldenburg, starting with Mario Mertz. And, of course, Mertz, Cy Twombly, Klaus Oldenburg, Merce Cunningham, they died fairly soon after you did it. So I hope David knew what he took on when he agreed to sit for you. What were can, the... I, can I already answer that? You can, because what I wanted to do in a slightly arch way was ask, what were the circumstances in which you got David to... To, uh, well, I have to answer your portrayed. first little... Uh, Jive. Yeah. Klaus Oldenburg is still alive. Sorry, yeah. Um, I think I met Michael Hamburger. Okay. Both Klaus Oldenburg and this film, Portraits of David Hockney, are on loops, which means if you... It actually pains me slightly to show it in this way, but I thought it was very important that it was seen because it's actually shown much smaller and in an art situation as an exhibit. And if you go to Frist Street Gallery, you can actually see how it should be shown. So it's always a bit difficult to constrain an audience to watch it, as I have here. And I always find that a bit <laughs> stressful, because even I get a bit bored. So, um, I, <laughs> so I, I, I understand that longer, you know, pushing that. But uh, one of the things ab about the loop system, the 60mm loop system, is that some films, like, for example, the film I made of Cy Twombly, Edwin Parker, has a fade up and a fade down, and it, and it ends in a sort of dusk situation. And with Klaus Oldenburg, he was involved, it's called Manhattan Mouse Museum, and he was involved in dusting all these objects in his basement. And, like, and then David is smoking. So there was nothing, you know, in relation to some sort of passage of time in a, in a, in a more, kind of, or a day in the life mm. of, or whatever. So I put them on loops, which means I cut from start to finish. So when you come into the gallery, you don't know what the start is. You know, there's no sense of start. You can come into any point in that film, and, it, you know, there's no beginning and end in a sense. Your, your length of time is the length of a cigarette. And it's the same with Klaus Holdenberg. And, touch wood, <laughs> maybe that's what keeps them alive. <laughs> <laughs> no fade to black. <laughs> it, it is interesting, actually, because seeing it unraveled in a linear way as we've just done I mean I, I came in as David was chuckling last night and then sat round till he started chuckling again and you do sort of read it in, in different ways at the same time there's a kind of immersion in subject matter how complicit was he and how curious was he as to what you were doing because I know that people who sat for him for the paintings upstairs people who wanted to know where he, what he was painting you know, he was often giving a commentary of what he was doing how complicit was he well, I remembered when you um, just sort of hinted at that question just a minute ago when we were da sitting down there, why I actually remembered asking him. Because I made this film um, called Bon Fresco, which was a film with a macro lens of Giotto's frescoes of St. Francis. And I was in, in Assisi. And I was it allowed me to go very, very high up on a scissor lift with a macro lens and really film fingernails or, or whatever, you know, a privileged view. 
and I remember there at a certain point making a correlation between the sort of these figures um, in the frescoes with, you know, something like Philip Guston's fingers with a cigarette. And I remember when I asked David, I sent him pictures from Bonfresco of fingers and said, I would like to make a very, very macro um, film of your, you know, you smoking a cigarette. And it became this, so it was different. So we got lenses that were quite tight, so he did sort of know that. And he actually came around the camera and had a look through it. So he could see what he, obviously he wasn't sitting there, so he couldn't see himself. But uh, he, you know, he knew what we were doing. And he got, he did get very involved in a completely uninvolved way. <laughs> so, you know, he, he knew some sense about the lenses and how close they were. He seemed, I mean, one of the other works, uh, extraordinary works that you have at Frith Street at the moment is, is a film of, I think, your first formal foray into theatre. Um, an event for a stage where the notion of fiction and fact and the complicity of audience and actor and what an actor is doing and the self-consciousness of an actor is one of the, the subjects that's wrestled with there. I don't know if I'm misinterpreting, but David, he's obviously is aware of what you're doing, but seems relatively unself-conscious for a lot of that, apart from when he gets a fit of giggles um, over his passion for smoking and, and, um, and his crusade, I suppose. Um. He's a pro, you know, he's somebody who's been filmed a lot. But of course, that's always what I try and achieve with, with, when I f film these people is that they're not aware of the camera, like, the, 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 you know, whoever's behind the camera becomes slightly invisible and it's more about there. But of course, that was absolutely the opposite with Event for a Stage, which was very deliberately trying to make a portrait of an actor. You know, it was all, what is an actor? Or, you know, it was, you know, a profession and not a... A person. So when you were filming David, where were you? Or will you never give this? I imagine that one of the, the people, he, the person he's looking at as he gets the giggles at the end is you. He's talking to you. It was with JP, his assistant, who uh -huh. also had a cigarette. Uh -huh. And they were sort of doing cigarette semaphore, you know, across the... <laughs> so were you out of sight and, and behind, you're with the camera? I'm with, with the, the camera. camera. Well, yes, I was. I mean, I, in fact, there were so many mirrors, it was quite difficult to find a place to stand because um, we had to play with mirrors, such a line that you couldn't see the camera or, or me. So. Just before I come back to you and portraits, the other context for this work, which was actually on the wall in the penultimate sequence of the film, is a portrait of your son, Rufus, who you can't miss because not only is he on the, the far wall of the North Galleries, the first galleries of the Sackler Galleries, but he's one of the selected figures on the facade of the building. He's the, he's the young, elegantly dressed uh, young man, uh, boy, in a the jacket and tie. Um, which came first, Rufus's portrait or your portrait of David, and how are the two linked or are they not? Um, no. I mean, obviously, sorry, Rufus's portrait was before yours because it's in the portrait, but did you uh, approach David to paint your to do his portrait first, and then he decided... I didn't yours. approach David to do his portrait. You think I'd have the nerve to do that? Yes. God, no. <laughs> no, 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 what happened is that... No, I, no, sorry, I meant, didn't mean, did you approach David to do Rufus's portrait? I meant when you approached David oh, to make a portrait that. of him. Yeah, sorry, no, no, I didn't. <laughs> um, I had dinner with David, with this, this Sydney um, Felsen from Gemini Jail. It took me to have dinner, and Rufus and Matthew to have dinner with... David up in his his you know his house and studio in the same building, 
Um, right at the beginning of when I arrived in Los Angeles, I was at the Getty for a year as an artist in residence. And, you know, and he, he's, you know, and it was a meeting, it was incredibly exciting to meet him. And, but I, what I remembered a lot was, you know, the, the smoking, which is the sort of leitmotif of every dinner you have with him. Is, you know. And, um, then I was just for some reason driving, uh, driving, and I, you know, I didn't really, you know, I didn't think, I want to make a point. I, actually, I, I really didn't think, even when I had dinner then, that I thought of it. But suddenly I thought there was something nice about the length of a cigarette in relation to filming somebody. So I thought, well, I'll film one cigarette with Dave. So I wrote, and then I met him again. He gave a letter at the Getty, and I, I met him again. And I didn't mention it that night, but I observed him. And then next day I wrote him a letter saying, can I film you having a cigarette? And he wrote back saying, I would be very happy to sit for you. It was very interesting, the language. And then, um, so time elapsed, and, and then I had to go up to check whether they had fluorescent lights, because if you use 60mm film, you know that fluorescence causes strobing, fl flicking to do with the frame rate. So we were invited up to check the lights, and it was uh, Thanksgiving, so it was a week off school, and Rufus came up to, and um, he just sat there with his sketchbook. And, you know, and we were talking about, we were looking at all the pictures of the portraits that he had up on the wall. And there was one of a kind of uh, young guy from L.A. who looked like 16, but it turned out to be 12. And I said, oh, you know, but Rufus is, you know, he just, he just turned 11. I said, he's just, just turned 11. And David turned around and he said, oh, shall I give him a go? You know, and then he said to one of, you know, Jonathan Mills, he said, uh, get me a canvas. And Jonathan said, a small one. He said, no, a big one. And there and then he drew this pence, beautiful pencil drawing of Rufus, who was, you know, sat on the stage and kind of was. Um, and then he said, is he free for the next three days? And we said, yes, of course he is. <laughs> and luckily he was, but even if he wasn't, he was going to be. And so we, you know, we then had the most amazing three days where Matthew and, and I and Rufus just observed David painting Rufus. And then after day one, David got so excited because it, in a way, it touched something about himself. And I think that's probably why he's so fond of that portrait. Because, he, you know, he, the very next day we went up, he showed us his, you know, that self-portrait of he has, but he did it print with the, you know, the glasses and the suit and the tie. And, and he said it reminded him of him, you know, and especially as Rufus was just had his sketchbook out. And then we just watched this portrait develop. And they got really fond of Rufus. And it's like, um, even to the extent that he came to see Rufus in cabaret, playing Freikor. And, um, you know, and all these, it, it's, was, it's very, very nice, that connection, actually, between him and, and Rufus. To the extent that he told us he wanted to do him again on an iPad. So, so we'll hopefully go up in the next few weeks. The Hockney had set himself a very strict, Duration. I mean, it was three days, twenty-two hours, roughly. You, your, the duration of your portrayal of David is five cigarettes. You've talked a lot in the past about the process of editing and how important it is for you. And sometimes, you know, you often film. It's a kind of process of discovering. Then, you're, you know, then what you do and how you edit becomes central to the work. How systematic was your conception and the realization of the portrait of David? Did you think actually I will film you in five cigarettes, or did that just emerge as you were? Uh, no, it was, take, it was five takes, which reminded me of the Merce Cunningham form stillness, which was six takes and then became six performances because it was a performance and they were all intact. And just like that, I filmed 
each performance or each cigarette with two cameras. So I had two versions of it. And then I was quite rigorous in the sense I chose, you know, each cigarette. I chose one version of each cigarette. And then, and then uh, you know, to be honest, he has these, um, he loves these German cigarettes called Davidoffs, which last much longer than the, than the smaller ones. So the first cigarette is longer because it was longer, because it was a Davidoff. And then, and then he has these shorter cigarettes, and they were shorter. But I did pick, I did within that, well, you know, it is paced. I don't know if you noticed that, I, you know, it's not, and it, I didn't keep to the rigor of the length of the cigarette in the end. So I, I went for something else. I went for a sort of pace. And a change in David, if you notice, like, he, you know, by the time he's kind of in the penultimate scene when he's sort of giggling, looking around before he speaks, you know, he's very much like the young David Hockney he becomes familiar. But at the beginning, he's like more lost in his thought. And, you know, what he's doing is just looking. And that's what he says about um, smoking, which I loved. I heard it on the radio in, in L.A., actually. He was suddenly on the radio. And he was saying, well, if I didn't smoke, if I wasn't allowed to smoke, I'd think about my body. I don't want to think about my body. I want to think about the painting. So I think, you know, by forcing him to give up smoking, it would really interrupt now something that's become so embedded in his... Um, you know, how he perceives a painting and how he's thinking at that time. It's part of that process. But he doesn't smoke when he paints. He just sits down to think about the painting. And then he smokes. So... It's a wonderful conceit. I mean, conceit's maybe the wrong word. But, I mean, if, and, and if you meet Hockney, he, he will talk more about smoking than painting unless you can push him onto the subject of, of painting. Um, but you, of course, did see him work. And I was thinking that of the artists that you've made portraits of. Julie Meritu is applying paint to canvas on occasion, but again, it's a rumination, it's a thought process. So it seems so obvious now, so brilliant, that Hockney would be smoking, but did you consider asking him to allow you to film in painting? Would that not no, have been, not have interested you? No, I would never have gone near that. And um, because I think, uh, well, this is a, such an interesting question, because I, I think you can't, yeah, it's true, Julie is a sort of exception, actually. But um, if I think of, like, you know, Cy Twombly, you know, he... I always think he was an artist who was working in the moments when he's just being, because in a way he's waiting for the encounter. And actually, that for me, that's much more interesting than the actual encounter. Now, with Klaus Oldenburg, when we, we tried to... Um, because with with Klaus, it was it was more of a he. I didn't choose him in the same way as I chose the others. Like you know, it was came about in another way. I mean, he was very happy to etc. But um, when we arrived in his studio, he did draw. You know, he wanted. I actually had a I had an idea that I would call it Klaus Oldenburg draws apple pie. But then when watching him draw apple pie was so excruciating, I just couldn't use it. I just couldn't use it. And I knew when we were filming at the time that this was just, I just was as no-go territory. So I had that kind of rising panic when I was not going to know what to do. And it was only in the last 45 minutes when we were down in his basement because of self-consciousness. It's all about self-consciousness. I couldn't bear the, the theatricality of the drawing for the camera or whatever. It's very important or very hard to get a, a somehow a, 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 to depict someone that's gone beneath the conscious level and at a certain point Klaus got lost when he was dusting he went into another zone 
you know, he forgot what he was doing. He actually did get into dusting these objects and sorting through these, these knickknacks that he'd been collecting. And at that moment, I knew that actually I had something of his essence. But I hadn't, you know, when he was... No way did I have that. That was something else. That was like how Hollywood treats artists. It's not... Yeah, or a, a more documentary approach. I think self-consciousness is critical. I mean, we, we just fairly well raced through the abstract expressionist show that is nearly finished, but not quite in the, in the next galleries. And there is one of those um, very celebrated uh, photographs by Hans Namath of, of Pollock painting. And then, then, of course, he performed for the camera in, in motion as well. And actually, that was what drove him back to drink. He described himself as a phony. He felt he'd been exploited. He shouldn't have done it. And so that notion of self-consciousness and performing for the camera, I mean, it's, it's very resonant in what you've just um, what you've just the said. The thing is with Hockney is that he doesn't mind people being in the room and watching him paint. I can't be watched if I'm drawing. I find it really difficult. But so I just but but event for a stage seemed among many things to be a kind of exploration and almost a catharsis of the idea of self consciousness and, and performance and so on. So as you say, it's that you could call it a generic portrait of an actor, but there's a, there's a very specific person there and, and we're led to believe that the actor's own story is feeding in through this narrative my suspicion is you've controlled everything but i'm very curious we I mean, you have to give everything away but how much was that fully scripted and how much are the four evenings that you've filmed and used fragments from each evening in, in sydney two years ago how much was that a workshop where everything emerged or was clarified well I think it's pretty clear from the film that it was a performance. Because I, you, many of you probably haven't seen Event for a Stage, but it's, it was, f I was given a, um, four performance nights and a theatre in Sydney and carte blanche. And I decided, well, it's a theatre, therefore I need an actor. Right? So, um, whereas they thought that I would do something, you know, like Foley-esque, or I don't know what they thought. So I approached Stephen Delane, the actor Stephen Delane, and we had this fraught interplay, as we've uh, euphemistically called it, um, between the idea of what I had, what I expected an actor to be and do, and what he thought an artist should, you know. So it was really, really interesting, but it was quite fraught. And um, and then, so we developed. So I thought I would write a script for an actor. It's a very long story, but it, it, it's and and then he rejected that in a sense, and it's all about finding the form, of find, you know. So it is quite strange. So we filmed in the end um, four nights, and each of the four nights he has a different theatrical wig and different theatre makeup, and then when I and then part of the um, artifice or the the thing is that I actually had two sixty millimeter cameras and a chalk circle. Inside is one, and then outside is another. So I was also filming that night, one on 16mm, and 16mm runs out every, you know, after 10 minutes, and then you have to clapperboard it, because, you know, clapperboard is a way of signifying to the silent image, because film is always silent, that where the sound, you know, is, and you can match the clapper to the sound. So that's what a clapperboard is. But we had to use it really practically, but of course it became a device that Stephen quite enjoyed. So you know, so that's one signification to the artifice was that no matter what he's doing on stage, when the film goes, he breaks action, doesn't he? And he says, you know, oh, like, and you know, enroll, whatever. And um, 
but also when I was uh, cutting, because I cut my film on a cutting table, in I cut it in Berlin, um, and it was a huge job, if you can imagine it, four nights. And I cut between, sometimes even words, between gestures. And the fact that I could do that meant that it was a performance, surely. Well, no, I, I don't doubt that. And that's exactly my point, that he's, one, he's wearing a different wig, a different colour wig, his moustache, as you cut from sentence to sentence, as you said, word to word. So there is cl it's clearly tightly scripted, but at the same time, part of the artifice is he's referring to the arguments he's had with you. He's taking scripts from you on occasion, um, but he's also seeming to extemporize about his family. And I, and I thought that one of the things you were playing with was the notion that we would expect this to be totally scripted as fiction, but that actually a lot of his own experience and your experience would inform it. So the, it may have been quite, it wouldn't have been totally the fictional performance that we thought that it was. Well, that's the whole... Conceit. Yes. So I can't really, I'm not going to give you too much away. But, um, but, but it was, but my, the final question then is that it was, it was by the time he came to perform the four nights, it was fully, it was fully worked out. It was fully scripted. <laughs> You're good. We'll leave that alone. We, um, we've talked, you and I, over the last few weeks, months, we don't want to give too much away, but let's say amongst friends that there is a, a, a plan uh, for TASTA to, to work on a series of projects in a year or two's time involving the Royal Academy, the National Portrait Gallery, and the National Gallery. And we're looking at genre. It's an obsession of the Royal Academy's former first president, actually, Joshua Reynolds, the hierarchy of, of genre with history at the top and landscape still, a portrait, a portraiture landscape still life. Um, it's interesting as a kind of category, a kind of indexical approach, but I'm curious, you've worked across different genre, but obviously you blur those boundaries on occasions. Are you ever, I mean, do you approach portraiture fundamentally differently to a way that you might approach landscape? Um, at least conceptually or philosophically. I don't mean practically. It's obvious if you're dealing with a person or an immersion into a landscape, there's a difference there. Do the genres mean anything to you philosophically when you're approaching work, or is it always your approach is re reasonably similar to whatever subject well, matter Well, I mean, is? I remember when I moved from sort of these dilapidated uh, structures like Bubble House, Sound Mirrors, to Mario Mertz, it was... Um, you know, there was no difference whatsoever. The rate of dilapidation was the same. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, of course, I, the self-consciousness is one of the things that is the difference. You know, buildings aren't self-conscious. But it's interesting that bu Bubble House, well, you could say, was part of a, the, one of the later parts of a series of works loosely but totally connected to Donald Crowhurst, Disappearance at Sea, Attainment Electron, that were both landscapes, journeys, but also portraits, portraits in absentia. You make the journey to Cayman Brack to find the boat to photograph yeah. it, you find the house. And that's what I meant about boundary blurring, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that the fact that these, um, you know, and even now, I suppose, I also do it myself, is that people start talking about them as a group of works, the portrait films. But when I was beginning it, you know, the first portrait film, strictly portrait film, was uh, Mario Mertz. But then I made um, Section Cinema, which was the traces of Marcel Brodus's, Marcel Brodus's um, you know, uh, Section Cinema, Section Cinema, 
in Dusseldorf, which was just like the Fig 1, Fig 2, Silence, written all over the wall, which in a way is also a portrait, perhaps, in the same way as you're suggesting that Timothy Lettron was, or in absentia. And it's the same with um, Darmstädter Werkblock, which was block, you know, it was, in fact, I was kind of encouraged to do that because they were, this is the, um, in uh, Darmstadt, where uh, Boyce worked on a series of rooms, um, which was called Block Boyce, and it had this Hessian wall, and which the, 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 the museum Darmstadt wanted to remove. And there was a huge, uh, you know, hue and cry about it because, and I was, I kind of agreed that it was so fitting for Boyce, and Boyce made the work in relation to those rooms, even painted on the carpet, and it was a sort of insulation, and Boyce, you know, with felt was very interested in the insulation aspect of it, and they wanted to make it white walls, which they have subsequently done. So I was encouraged to go down to, you know, in a, in a sense, document the work, document it. But then I, you know, then, then I was forbidden from doing that because of the, the, the estate and the, you know, copyright reasons. So I said, well, if the walls don't mean anything, can I film the walls and not the works? So actually, the works were all in there, but I had to sort of, you know, get round them to film everything like the floors and the fire exit signs and the Hessian and the holes and the, and it became uh, absolutely a portrait, I think, in a way, in absentia again. So there is this blurring of what is a portrait. And, you know, with Nicholas Cullinan right now, we're deciding, well, what is a portrait? Because my Turbine Hall film is a portrait of the medium of film, in a way. So is that strictly... You know, it it's really is... You know, you can actually use these genres in huge... You know, can can take everything and then nothing, which is going to be something of the drama of our exhibition situation in a way, is where do we put, which section do we put what in, you know, and when you make these false categories, when, which, which, which is going to be interesting and also frustrating, and that's what we'll have to play with, with the idea of genre, in relation to me, at least. It's also interesting that people try, I mean, inevitably... Uh, taxonomically try and categorize your work it is so that there's the film work then there's the, uh, the, the the drawings wall drawings and so on and, and you, you as a collector and hearing you talk about voice and the wall and, and you you can see the connection the kind of the collecting of these traces visually so which which actually I'd never seen it never struck me as being so obvious but the systematic nature of your collecting from brown stones to four leaf clovers to photographs, postcards, and so on. It, it does relate, even though you've often described your process as not so systematic. The two are connected as well, aren't they? The boundaries are blurred in that way, too. Probably, but, you know, it's very important that I don't really know that. Because, I, you know, one of my things that I've, I think is very, very important to me and to actually most artists is that they don't become too self-conscious themselves. You know, I don't want to know what I'm doing too much. I need, to, I need to work slightly beneath my conscious level. So if I become too much of a self-conscious collector, you know, do you know what I mean? I, I, I need some sort of self-blindness. Um, I kind of caught that a bit. So. so conversations about what you do is not really helpful. <laughs> no, what I've done... Yeah. Um, <laughs> the... This, again, may be a little arch, but whilst I watched Hockney smoke through his five cigarettes for the second time in two days, I, I suddenly realised that the, the vapour trails 
that you've that those extraordinary uh, uh, um, works you've made, which are on show at Frith Street. There's a connection there. Is that is that serendipitous, or is is this, is this, is it conscious? No, no, no. It's I mean, it is serendipitous. I suddenly realised because um, in Los Angeles, where I am still, I haven't managed quite. So we should say your studio's in Berlin, but you've been in Los Angeles for a year and yeah, counting. Yeah, I'm camping in LA at the moment. I mean, as in <laughs> one sense of the word. Well, probably both, actually. Um, so, I, so anyway, when I got to Los Angeles, I was immediately absolutely enamored of the sky and the space in the sky and the, and the clouds. And um, one day, driving along Sunset Boulevard, which is where we were put up by the Getty, there was this unbelievably beautiful cloud just blossoming at the end of the road. I'd never seen anything like it, with a very beautiful dark blue sky and, and nothing in between, like no haze, nothing. And I just knew at that moment I had to try and make a huge chalk drawing of that cloud called Sunset. And I did. And, and that sort of began me, it began my journey about, you know, working with clouds. And then I was given these uh, slates, these Victorian era <clears throat> school, board, school slates. Um, and I, so I started to wrestle with that medium, which is, you know, the, the, the difficulty of drawing on slate. Chalk wouldn't work, so I had to find something else. So I was working with all these clouds, and then I turned 50. And then I decided to make a, a, what I called a, a concordance of 50 American clouds. So in all lots of medium, because I'm also making a point about mediums right now because of the threat to film. And um, one of the, the important things that happened, uh, in fact, that one of the major reasons I decided to go to Los Angeles two years ago was, in, was to do something about the medium of film because it was in, it was in dire straits. And I did, a, I did this series of things, one of them called Reframing the Future of Film, which was at the Getty, which actually has, you know, was with Christopher Nolan and the CEO of Kodak and all these people coming together for the first time. And one of the, one of the fundamental things was that they had never looked at film from the perspective of an artist. And I said, but for me, it's a medium. You know, for you, it's a technology. For me, it's a medium. And that was the sort of light bulb went on for people like Christopher Nolan saying, if you take, you see, the thing is, it's very important because uh, I wrote an article to the, for the New York Times, which they rejected. And when I spoke to the editor, she said, well, about film, that it was technological determinism. You know, like it's, you know, the obsolescence is inevitable within technology. And at that point, it just, it just made me think, it's not a technology, it's a medium. It's a medium. And as soon as you start talking about film as a medium, you take it out of that technological deterministic route. And, you know, and all those people are scared of being seen to still use film. They're no longer Luddites. They're just artists or filmmakers. And so um, this was a very, very important thing. So ever since, you know, saying, you know, putting about, saying film is a medium and pluralizing the word mediums, stop saying media because media is connected to, as we know, digital media. So now I say mediums. I don't use a variety of media. I use mediums, and I know I get corrected the whole time. It's going to be a problem for our press release, I have to yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, I think it's a bit of a political thing. You know, I think artists need to reclaim the word medium. And um, I say to Hollywood, you had two mediums. Why do you want to only have one again? And they suddenly think, oh, yeah, maybe. And, you know, but if you go into the, you know, these things become very, I've realized the future of film is about semantics. It's really, really a big thing. The mediums is the message. Um, 
Are that's you... what. That's why the fifty concordance of fifty clouds and the concordance, you know, led me to this uh, quote. You know, because I have a concordance which I found in my father's study, and it's a concordance of Shakespeare. And I looked up cloud, and then I was looking at, and there was one quote from Henry V that said, "My English breath in foreign clouds." And I was in LA, and I thought, "My God, that's got to be the title of my show at Marion Goodman Gallery." And then I thought, "Hockney, of course, it's the same." So I made that connection only at that point. That his, you know, that is his English breath in foreign clouds, isn't it? And what you've just said in the last minute is a wonderful example of how a lot of your work evolves. That there's something very focused about what you do, but then these connections continue and emerge and resonate and reverberate. Yeah. Do you do you feel more optimistic now than you did? when you did the turbine commission at Tate, the portion of the film, about the future of film. I mean, you're, you're, you're characteristically bullish about it, quite rightly, too. But, but it, there is, in certain quarters, people feel that film's future is slightly less threatened than it was. Is, is that um, glib and not true? No, 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 no. And I'm, it totally is. If, you know, a minute ago, we were just about to fall off this stage, and now I've got my toes to the edge. We've made... A significant, I mean, it's, we're, there's still a, a really long way to go because it needs, my ambition really is that film becomes normal again. You know, that it stops being this endless fight for its survival and this, you know. But what happened is that uh, we were a piece of paper away from the end of photochemical film in this world, by the way, and I don't think people realize how close we were. Uh, Kodak, who were the only manufacturer of color negative in the world, um, well, as you all know, went into bankruptcy, um, chapter 11. And um, one of the things, they got rid of their CEO and they got a new CEO who came from travel. His first day, he's called Jeff Clark. On his first day, first day, they handed him a press release that said Kodak is going to stop making a motion picture film, expecting him to sign it and not, you know, because it's his first day and he's from travel. And thank God... He just put his hand on it, he read it, and he put his hand on it and said, actually, can I just look into that? And they were like, you know. And then he went to Hollywood, he met Tarantino, Nolan, and all the J.J. Abraham, Spielberg, because there's a lot of people that love film there. And they said, we want it, we want to keep it. You know, how do we do it? And then they did this whole deal with the studios where the studios buy a certain amount. And that, and that now... These guys, the Kodak guys, are totally dedicated to their medium. Totally dedicated. And now there's no way they're going to stop film now. But they do need to make it economically, uh, you know, can survive, that it can survive. And, you know, let's touch... They are hoping to develop a touchscreen technology using, um, I think it's uh, copper. Copper. I think I'm allowed to say that. It might be an industrial secret. But anyway, if they manage it, which means now, of course, it's all beholden to rare earths in China, but if they manage that, then film is going to be fighting to get onto their machines. But they were there dedicated to it now, and they're going around. There's a new president of film in L.A. He came from the Gulf Channel, and um, they're all true evangelists. And it's it's, you know... They're going around shaming people, saying, you know, why don't you want James Cameron to, you know, why do you want him to use video and stuff like that? And, you know, it's all this stuff. They don't, 
Christopher Nolan doesn't refuses to say digital, he says video. They hate him, of course. Because it's all language, that's what I mean, it's all language. You know, the whole thing was making sure people called it old-fashioned, obsolete, end-of-life technology. You know, I was, you know, and as soon as you turn around the language, so you don't say I'm working, you know, they say, you know, and I shall school the Royal Academy not to say old-fashioned or anything like that. It's a, it's a really great medium that does different things than I think digital. Well, you appreciate the converted, but I wonder if you have to be so evangelical that you can never countenance using digital if it, if it ever felt necessary for you. I mean, would that be... I use digital. I use digital. My sound's been digital for years. I mean, what's this rubbish that I don't use digital? Of course I use digital. You know, I've been sitting with, you know, making books digitally for years. I'm not anti-digital at all. And by the way, um, one of the things that really impresses me about David is that he's just open to everything and he's constant changing with mediums, all sorts of stuff. He's doing these great things with an, uh, drawings with an iPad. I'm not, I would, I'm, you know, what happened in 2011 when Soho Film Lab was closed and I wrote the Guardian article and suddenly it, you know, film was really fighting for its survival. I had to become its champion because no one else was. The silence was very, very loud. And you have to remember that I show. We have to thank Ken Graham there for projecting the film. But I show my films on film, so what would I do? Never show my work again, never see my own work again. Or you know, I'm not going to, you know, change the medium of of my work like these guys. You know, we're not. You know, it doesn't. The the, the standards are not applied to other works of art. You wouldn't put facsimiles of these up and say that they are the original, would you? So, and I feel as passionate about that as with film as a, you know, as a digital replica of it. Funny you should say that, um, because we, we had a scanner, a 3D scanner in uh, last week that was producing replicas of people's heads, but that's the beginning. And the, way, the, the, the importance of that technology for the future of conservation, that you scan things and you, you're able all virtually to preserve them through 3D technology in the state they're in. I mean, you're, you're able to preserve records of, of an object or an artifact in the state they're in now. And that interests me a lot, but that's a... a it's a different well, No, 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 but let's not forget that the turbine hall was only resolved by making 3D printing of the aperture gate masking. So it was the state-of-the-art technology meeting, enabling, uh, you know, this photochemical work. So I'm not anti-digital at all. For me, it's an amazing tool. But it's pe I'm always castigated at that just because I'm having to... Well, yeah, I've clearly touched a raw nerve. I wasn't actually suggesting you were. Um, but I asked whether you could ever countenance the use of digital Im imagery. And you slightly sidestepped it by saying you use it when you need to. But the, I What, you mean as a, as a work of art? Yeah, but for you, the, it's the quality of film that yeah, it's interests It's the physicality you. of... You know, film, I have to say, is a physical thing. It's like 23 layers of emulsion, so that's why it has depth. And don't you ever tell me that you can't tell the difference between a 60-millimeter film and... Um, a digital copy of it because you 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 know it's going to be very clear but within the multiplexes and all that that of course it's all got very obfuscated but within my level of depiction it's still quite clear how different they are but you also make them differently and i think the making of them differently has been completely um subdued in the discussion because that's actually the biggest thing does anybody want to dare to um Question, Tasta, on this. I think we've got about five minutes for questions of the floor. You don't have to go head-to-head -head on film, um, but you can no, if you I'm want. I'm not opposition. I'm just, um, you know, having to... We know that. 
really. Can I just ask, when you say that Phil might be saved, as uh, I, un- as I, I said, I, I was standing with my feet well, to the edge of the stick. It. As I understood it, Mike Lee had had to swap because the technology that surrounded it. No, no, he didn't. No, 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 no. You mean with Mr. Turner? That was a decision. No, no, that he'd, he'd said in the film before that that he was going to have to stop simply because the, the sort of, the, the industries around it had collapsed, like splicing or whatever it was, I can't remember. No, 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 no I mean, Ken Loach couldn't yeah. get the rubber stamping that he wanted, right. and, and actually, ironically, in the end, it came from, um, you know, the people that made, what's it Pixar. called? Pixar, yeah. yeah. So it was Ken Loach Sorry, yeah. who, who did that. But um, he's still making films, by the way, and cutting off, uh, you know, shooting on film. So he said he would have to stop, but actually he's just made one, another one. So it's, yes, it was a scary moment, a very scary moment. And there is only one neg cutter left in Britain. So it's the industries around it still have to also survive. Yes, they do. Yeah. And they need support. With regards to you were saying about how important to film something of his essence, which really resonates with me and with my own artwork, I was wondering whether the actual physicality of the original film that you're filming with, the fact that it was in the room with him, that, that the film was actually being almost impregnated with his cigarette smoke while he was smoking it, how important that part is? Is that you know, the, the, the reason why you, is the original is so important, and whilst, why that film could well, not be copied really to be the same. Well, I'll tell you a really story that Christopher Nolan said at the reframing thing. He said, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, it's, it's an indexical thing. The light from the desert of that day would have changed the crystals in the emulsion, which through internegative, interpositive, and all the prints going down through time is the same light. It's a, it's a, but if you, as soon as you turn it to pixels, then you have cut that line. I mean, it is, of course, a very poetic sort of, um, you know, thing to say, but it's, it, it is about the indexical relationship of light and emulsion, exposing emulsion and affecting the crystals. And that, in term, when you make a copy, you know, neg, you, when you make a copy of a, you know, print from it, you do a contact print. And it's the same you know, relationship that continues, you know, to your cinema down the road. Do you see what I mean? There's, and something of that, of course, this is a fundamental tenet of the difference between film and, and, and digital now, which matters deeply to me. When you film Hockney in LA, that moment, of course you are, it's the same thing that you're getting. And nowadays, digitally, not so much within all our digital cameras, but in the, you know, it so often just becomes a template on which other things get added later. And but so that moment of originality, or whatever the word would be, um, what's the better word? Has, is it would is dissipated and gone. You know that that moment you're talking about the smoke or the light. You know, but it very literally the the um, the exposure that. You know, that's gone and dissipated. So these things are, of course, you know, and I remember saying this on stage in the BFI with him, and, and he was like, you know, um, everything that an artist might want to use film for, which is all the things that he wouldn't use it for, because, it, you know, it is, it's in a way, about poetics and, 
poetics aren't practical. So everyone has their own reasons, but you know, the, it is a very poetic medium, and, and all the blindness of what happens when you film something, you don't know what you're going to get. It's very important, all these things, but you can't say it in a hard-line universe. That... I'll tell you something indiscreet, but don't shove your noses up against the canvases. If you smell the back of those canvases, some of them, you can definitely smell the smoke. <laughs> okay, one more question. I wanted to ask, when I was watching the Hockney film, that... Um, when you hear a really good um, interviewer or interrogator even talk about it, the silence encourages people to talk more about themselves than they otherwise would. Do you, do you use that as... Is that part of the reason why you withdraw your presence from, from the film as much as you do? You know, it's very interesting in relation to my film of, of Cy Twombly, because um, every time... I got anywhere near him, he would talk to me. And therefore, that would become unusable. And, um, and beautiful stuff that I, you know, in a way, you know, about grits and, you know, what grits are, you know, and stuff like that. But I couldn't, you know, at a certain point, I had a bit of a problem with that, you know, actually the strobing of the lights because the cameraman flicked the thing onto the wrong frame rate. So I, um, I lost a lot of part of that film. And I was, in a certain point, I was so desperate, I thought I might have to make it, you know, bring myself into it, which I did, that only lasted briefly. But um, yes, it, you know, I have often had to just leave the room in order to or somehow find a way that they don't make me the focus of attention. And so having JP there, actually. And to be honest, at the end, you know, it is also a bit about editing, because David it does actually, for a whole role, talk about smoking in, in the way he does every dinner, in a way. And I just cut it down to that beautiful moment of the last, and the laugh is so, in fact, you cannot not laugh with him, can you? That's what's so great about it, you cannot not laugh. He just makes you, he's so infectious, his laughter. So, but it is true, it is a problem always to, to just, you know, disappear or in a way, you know. It's a very interesting question you raised about, the presence of the of, of yourself, the artist's self in the work, because obviously it's there, but to varying degrees. And you have often used autobiographical elements, or members of your family are referred to, or friends of the family get involved in, in, in boots, for example. But and in event for a stage, you're there in the vestigial gloom of the audience, handing the uh, Stephen. Yeah, Stephen made me do that. Ah, good. Well, so my final question, which I know is one that you resist because I don't want to make you over self-conscious about your place in, in things, but um, self-portraiture, is this something, broadly speaking, you don't want to deal with explicitly? I haven't to date. Great answer. Um, the portrait of film that was in the Turbine Hall, um, such a, a powerful piece, is opening tonight, it's being reinstalled tonight, in Amsterdam, and it's to Tacitus, I think, immense credit and generosity of spirit that, having discovered this was the case, but committed to do a talk here at the Royal Academy, she's missing her own opening. So, for so many reasons, that, above all, um, can I thank you so much for being here in person, and without giving too much away, we're looking forward to seeing you back at the Royal Academy in the future. Tacitus, thank you. Thank you, Tim. Bye. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.